Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to issue three of the Water Cooler, coming to you live from the Basement Theatre on Lower Grays Ave, Auckland City, New Zealand, on Friday the 28th of February 2014! Um, so, uh, uh, just a couple of thanks uh, at the top so we can get through it. Um, uh, so, a little bit of seriousness. Um, a special thank you to the young man who was sitting up behind you who unsolicited decided to start doing uh, a tremendous job uh, putting together all of the lighting for us, setting up the microphones. He even. His name is, I'm not finished, his name is Sam Mintz, and uh, he actually, believe it or not, actually took out, took out a, uh, a screwdriver thingy, majubi, is that what it's called, a screwdriver? Sorry, I'm not a handyman. I don't do a lot of things with my hands. Uh, um, and he installed this, this OHP thingy over here with, this, with, the, with the thing, he installed that, like drilled into the wall, just for tonight. So thank you, Sam Mintz. Another round of applause for him, thank you. I gotta remind myself. I gotta. I gotta keep in mind that we uh, that we gotta be out of here uh, <laughs> for so that snort can begin at some point. So we'll try and get through everything quickly. Uh, all of the all of this stuff in the at, for the beginning. Um, uh, so I just also wanted to to uh, to, to thank you guys. Uh, uh, this is the most exceptional turnout. I am so impressed, um, and f we're all flattered, incredibly flattered. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, everybody's here for Richard Bowl. He's our he's our closing act for the night. So that so so that tells you something about the level of of uh, love that we have for Richard. Um, uh, but no, but thank you for coming for this. Thank you for making this a thing. Thank you for giving us an audience, especially during our infancy. This is only our third attempt at doing this. So you guys are trailblazers. You're here at the uh, the ground floor uh, as we as we build this into something uh, that could be quite good. Um, and, um, uh, and, and thank you also for being uh, generous with your, uh, with, your, with your time. Thank you. So thank you guys. Thank you for the audience. Audience, audience, give yourself a round of applause. So if you are unfamiliar with us, uh, this is The Water Cooler. We are the country's finest storytelling event. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. I did a little bit of research and I couldn't find anything else that seemed finer. So as far as I'm concerned, this is the finest storytelling event in the country. Um, we, each month we choose a theme. <laughs> this is, uh, I do my... Each month we choose a theme. I do my This American Life voice, uh, Ira Glass. Uh, each week, we, each month we choose a theme. We invite speakers, storytellers, or orators from all walks of life to come up and get up in front of you guys and expound upon that theme. This week's theme is No Animals Were Harmed During the Making Of. So you and these guys may interpret that at will. Um, I am your fearless host. My name is Oliver Quincy Page and I smell great. Thank you. Some fans of my smell in the audience. Um, if you don't believe that, uh, you can sniff me after the show. Um, and I'm also available for private sniffings, um, and I do make house calls. Um, so I decided to completely go James Lipton inside the actor studio, studio for this. We get, so we're going to do like some little sit-down, uh, brief interviews beforehand, before they, uh, the speeches. So, um, so, the, the, so this, this should be fun. But I am genuinely interested. My, uh, my favorite part of inside the actor studio, I don't know if anybody, anybody watches that shit anymore. But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, my favorite part is when they ask the actors uh, what, what their favorite curse word is. So, um, with trepidation, I ask the audience, what are your favorite curse words? So we've got cunt over here. Anybody, fuck. 
Clusterfuck. Clusterfuck's a good one. Anybody, I see a clusterfuck. Can I raise, can somebody raise me something else? Cockmaster. Cock we got cockmaster. Anybody else? Fuck stump. Fuck stump. You are sick. That is disgusting. Yeah, also, intri also intriguing. Um, wonderful. Ten did you say, did somebody say tenderizer? That could be, that's that, yeah, I could get behind that. Um, uh, so, for the sake of your speakers here tonight, and for the sake of your own enjoyment uh, of the show, please set your cell phones to stun. That was a, that was a joke. <laughs> I wrote that down and then said it out loud. Um, so, what constitutes an animal? This is, this is, the, this is the question we're going to be getting at. We're going to be discussing. We're, trying to, we're going to try and get metaphysical, I think. Um, so, I want to ask, first of all, are animals, in, uh, uh, sorry, are insects animals? Um, because I can certainly trace my feelings on animals back to my childhood relationship to mosquitoes. Um, I, I don't know if, if you guys have had the same experience as I, as, as, as I did as a child. I'm sure many of you did. But ch children are prone to convincing themselves that they have superpowers. Um, uh, did you guys, anybody, anybody here have any decent superpowers uh, that, they, that they would like to, tell, that they'd like to tell their friends that they had? I, for instance, could talk to animals when I was a kid. I uh, also had x-ray vision. Um, some friends of mine... Uh, oh! Whoa! Lovely latecomer. If you are not paranoid, you are not thinking hard enough. It's my message for all latecomers. Um, uh, so, um, so for me, my childhood superpower, um, as I look back, was uh, I never got stung by mosquitoes. That was, my, that was my superpower. I used to regale my friends with stories of me going to the beach uh, with wearing nothing, completely nude, at night in the heat of summer and never getting bitten once by mosquitoes. Um, uh, of course, that was once a, child, a thrilling childhood superpower and slowly as it morphed and, and, and my self-esteem started to take a nosedive somewhere around 16 or 17 um, and combined with uh, my rejection complex, uh, it turned into a fear that Mother Nature thinks that I'm filthy and awful. <laughs> Um, so, so at this point, <laughs> at this point, uh, I'm, I, I feel that I, I fear that I am being rejected by the planet Earth. <laughs> that's that's it, pretty much. Um, but this this that that principle, the mosquitoes hating me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and me taking it personally, uh, has carried through my entire adult life um, in regards to animals. They, they have a real distaste for me. Um, cats, dogs, monkeys, small children, any kinds of animals you can think of, uh, they hate me. Um, uh, uh, as, uh, when, <laughs> excuse me, um, all of my pets have killed themselves. This is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is an empirical truth. Um, cats I have, I have uh, nurtured and grown up with have thrown themselves under cars. Dogs have eaten rat poison to die lo in lonely fields at dusk just to spite me. Dog, cats and dogs, I, my, my household pets, they kill themselves uh, because they don't like living with me. Once, uh, one cat, her name was Fizzy, she locked herself in my bedroom as my house plunged into a gully during a massive midday landslide. This is a true story. My mother, who was in the audience, can, 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 right at the back there. Hey, round of applause for mothers. Uh, 
especially ones who support their sons by coming to all of their storytelling events and speaking engagements. Um, so, what? <laughs> Somebody likes my mother. Her name is Anna Page. She's available. I'm just saying, meet her after the show. She's a lovely woman. Um, um, so, um, so without further ado, our first speaker tonight uh, is a compulsive overeater um, and the first Chinese-American figure skater. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Phineas Tepid. This is your microphone, sir. Um, so, um, so I guess I, I just wanted Testing. to... Yep. We can, can, can he be heard? Yes, he can be. Sam, how's that going? How's it going for sound? We're good for sound. Okay, good. Um, so, um, so I only met you, I, I just met you recently and, and, and we've embarked upon uh, a, a little writing project together. That's um, correct. And um, I just wanted to say that I am, I wanted to be very honest. I, I figure that the, the, the point of this, this event is to be, to be honest with each other and to, and, to, and to get real truths out there. So I thought I might just say, um, I'm developing a crush on you. I am a homosexual, Good. he is not, so this is a problem. Is there's, there's just something about your suave, your suave devil-may-care attitude, your thinning hair. It's, you're, you're just, you're virile, that's what it is. It's the light. It's the light. Under natural light, outside, it doesn't look thinning at all. <laughs> It's these X-ray lights. I just, I just like it. I like that you're consistently clad in, in like this linen. This, the, the, in, in, the, in this, yeah, consistently, yeah, linen shirts. That's your, <laughs> that's your thing. That's um, so, uh, so, so tonight, um, so tonight you will be reading uh, not your own story, in fact, but someone else's story. Do you want to give us a little bit of background on, on that for the audience? Uh, that's correct. Um, my name is Finn, and I, that's who I am. Also, I am Finn. Uh, but I'm also a little bit of Alex, uh, who wrote this really great story. He couldn't be with us tonight, so I'm going to be with him. He is from Melbourne. And he is a he and he is from Melbourne? He speaks like this. Oh, he's a, so Finn, Finn, I don't know if you could tell, but Finn's doing a fake Australian accent. None of you knew, did you? Thank um, you. So, uh... Uh, so, so he is not here, so you're going to be reading his story out. Have, you, have you had an opportunity to read it beforehand, or is this going to be a cold read, or what's going on here? I, I had to read it beforehand to think of some jokes I could make myself uh, uh, and, and pretend that I, I just thought of them. I just ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I ruined it, but... Um, all right, so, um, so, so uh, um, I have a couple of um, uh, uh, one-word answer questions for you. Shoot, mate. <laughs> See, this is, this is why I have the crush. Do you think there's any, any chance of you and I getting together? Probably not, right? Yeah. I'm like, a, I'm, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm a nice guy. I don't know. My, uh, is it, this isn't a one word one, is it? Yeah, no. no. My, right. my feelings for you, Oliver, uh, go up and down more times than a bride's nighty. I think that's, I think that's, a, that's an Australian thing he's trying to say. That's a. Okay. Apologies to all question. the Australians in the house. Yeah, all right. So, cat or dog? Dog. Up or down? Cat. Oh, down. <laughs> Left or right? Right. Port or starboard? Starboard, which is right and, and ship talk. Ship talk. I actually genuinely don't know that. We're going to start, Finn and I are going to start a separate uh, event. It's going to be called The Boat Show. We're just going to discuss boats. Boats. Um, 
This uh, one is a sale. Yeah. Uh, Google or Bing? Bing. Bing. <laughs> Give it up for Bing. Um, uh, really, they, Bing needs to get out of the out of the out of the industry of translating things on Facebook because I've had some strange conversations. Um, uh, and finally, any or outie? Any. Sweet, ladies and gentlemen, Phineas Tepet. <laughs> Sorry, before you start, Finn, we have one more person. Is there a, is there a seat anywhere in the house? Uh, is there? Perhaps, do you, there we go, we've got something? Cool. Hey, Eleanor. Hey. <laughs> Thank uh, you Ali. for coming. All right. Uh, okay, as I said, I don't normally talk like this, but I have watched The Castle more than enough times to be able to do a pretty good accent. Uh, Pet Talk by Alex, read by Finn. My family home was in a town called Ben Alla, about two hours' drive from Melbourne. I'm the second oldest of five children in a big catholic family. Catholic family. Thank you. It's a story It's a story about pets. I assumed it was The kind of family where everyone says, I love you, at the end of every sentence. They hug all the time and attend church on a Sunday. As a town, Ben Ella is the sort of place where, as a young man, you can play Aussie rules football or be a pansy. <laughs> I was a total pansy. I spent my time reading books, playing video games and singing in the school choir. My siblings were pansies too. And to fill our spare time, we were into pet ownership. <laughs> we had, and this is by no means a complete list, chickens, dogs, cats, fish, budgerigars, <laughs> guinea pigs and rabbits. We also, took, we also took in the occasional injured possum. My siblings had a tendency to name pets after sweet treats. We had a bird named Biscuit, a dog named Licorice All Sort, and the star of my story tonight, read by Finn, a <laughs> guinea pig bearing the lengthy, mysterious name of Snowflake Chocolate Chip Cookie. As a guinea pig, it was in Snowflake Chocolate Chip Cookie's nature to be an essentially useless, boring pet. For those unfamiliar with guinea pigs, it was a 20 centimetre long furry cylinder <laughs> with tiny sharp feet. It shared a hutch in the backyard with a blind deaf rabbit and we occasionally chucked scraps of food in there, dragged the hutch around so they had fresh grass and changed the water. As far as I could tell, scampering around aimlessly was the defining element of Snowflake's character. As a large Catholic family, we had a love of ritual, particularly funeral ritual, which we had plenty of practice with thanks to the constant life-death cycle at play in our backyard. When a pet died, the seven of us gathered in a circle around a spot at the very back of our property. Someone dug a hole and we delicately placed the deceased animal in it. 
Those who are too moved to speak would throw in slips of paper with pictures they'd drawn of the deceased <laughs> or poems. Everyone else would praise the dead animal, commenting on its notable qualities. <laughs> this ceremony was incredibly important. It had to take place at a time when all family members were present. It had to be heartfelt. Joking about the pet's flaws or general irrelevance was frowned upon. <laughs> Another tradition in our family was our yearly beach holiday to Bonnie Doon. <laughs> we'll start really in there. <laughs> We're going to Bonnie Doon. This was up there with pet funerals in significance. These customs clashed on the day in question in 2001. My mum was delivering a lettuce to Snowflake Chocolate Chip Cookies Hutch, so it and the rabbit would have something to eat while we were away at the beach for a week. She discovered, I presume to her horror, that the guinea pig was dead. Knowing that we had little time to go through with the essential rituals to pay respect to the deceased, my mum did the only thing she could. She lifted Snowflake chocolate chip cookies lifeless form out of the hutch, wrapped it in tissue paper, put it in a shoebox, put the shoebox in a plastic bag and placed the whole lot in the freezer. She didn't mention the pet's passing until more than a week later. When we all arrived home from the holiday, sunburned and exhausted, we planned a burial at some point in the future when we were all present and had time to draw our pictures, write our poetry and prepare our speeches. Time passed. <laughs> My brother broke his arm. My littlest sister was born. I got a job as a paper boy then left that job to become a checkout chick. America invaded Iraq. There was a horrific tsunami. <laughs> there was a horrific tsunami, Oliver, in Southeast Asia. Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. Across the globe, pets were laid to rest. Time passed. But not our <laughs> guinea pig. It remained frozen solid in purgatory. I was in my final year of secondary school when Snowflake chocolate chip cookie crept back into my thoughts. I was reaching into the freezer for some ice cream when I noticed the shoebox in its plastic bag wedged between a tray of sausages and a tray of steak. <laughs> it seemed unfortunate to me that despite it having been discussed numerous times in the past half decade, the burial ceremony never seemed likely to take place. So that night, under cover of darkness, my sister and I hatched a plan. We crept out to the freezer in the garage. We removed the tiny creature in its shoebox coffin, carried it to the garbage bin, which was out for collection, and tossed it in. <laughs> Not a word was spoken about this to the rest of the family, but I certainly felt relieved. And that is the story of how Snowflake Chocolate Chip Cookie, after five years in the deep freeze, waited for a funeral which was never to come ended up unceremoniously dumped in the garbage to thaw. <laughs> and this is the only time I've dared Finn to tell the sordid story in full.
that was kind of like a provincial uh, David Cronenberg movie. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was deeply terrifying. Um, uh, so uh, our next speaker, our second speaker tonight, uh, is a crusty but benign police lieutenant, still obsessed with catching the Zodiac Killer 30 years later. Please welcome Sarah Finnegan-Walsh. Who's the Zodiac Killer? Sorry, use your microphone voice. Who's the Zodiac Killer? <laughs> So don't ruin, don't, 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 you're breaking the fourth wall, ruining the illusion. Um, so uh, Sarah is, uh, in fact, I don't know if many of you know this, but Sarah is the producer of this show, and this is her first time speaking. She's also, she's also expressed to me on a, a number of occasions how nervous she is. So, um, so I'd like, I'd like, uh, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like it if you joined me in uh, helping her by imagining her naked. <laughs> Isn't that how? That's how it works, right? Imagine Don't people naked. It. That makes you, you, you get, you feel more comfortable in front of an audience. Oh my God, you are all naked right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Uh, um, uh, what was I going to ask you? Oh, I was going to say that's right. Um, so when we first got to know each other, which was which was about uh, three or four years ago now, I'd imagine. I'd imagine. At Borders. At, sorry, at Borders. That's right. We, our first, we, uh, my first job was at Borders Books, Music, Movies, and Magazines. Um, I don't know if you guys remember that, the glory days of. of <laughs> <laughs> Quiet in the cheap seats. Um, uh, I, we, we, uh, uh, we worked together. Sarah was my, was, was... I was head of music, he was Christmas help. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also the name of my new volume of autobiography. <laughs> Christmas help, the Oliver Page story. Um, I, um, uh, later on, um, after that, after that, we, we eventually, uh, became reacquainted. And one of the first things that, that, that happened between us as friends were, was uh, I Facebook messaged oh you God, after uh, after taking a taking a couple of uh, sleeping pills? Now I don't know if anybody knows about sleeping pills, but if you don't go to sleep, they make you a little nutty. Um, and 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 I sent Sarah this long, elaborate uh, Facebook message, um, essentially asking her out. Um, you know, which is ironic given I'm a homosexual. Um, and, and also, uh, and also, um, also d deeply distressing because the language I used made it sound more like I was her father than, <laughs> than, um, Sarah, I was wondering, I'd wondered if you, if you, if you'd had an opportunity to think about the, uh, opportunities available to you. Um, it, it opened with, don't laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> it totally did. I forgot about that. Um, so um so uh so I I I want to I want to just uh, imagine uh, let's just uh, you know let's take a take a magical trip into an into um, imaginations and, and imagine what would have happened had you have said yes. What do you think? Do you think we would have made a nice couple? We'd have three children. Oh, you think? Yeah. You think we'd have would have had three children? Mm -hmm. I think we would have got a it would have been sexless, but it would have been nice. Yeah. I mean, you're delightful and and you know and yeah. I get by. That'd be Oscar. And Zibidi. Oscar M M Moshe. Oscar Moshe. Yeah, Oscar Moshe. And Zibidi. Zibidi. Female. And, and Female. Zeke. Ooh, I like it. I like Zeke. Let's do this. Sorry? <laughs> In any case, 
Um, uh, in any case, we've had this. We've had, we've we, we've become friends, and now we work together. And and I love you with all my heart and soul. So, uh, so our, uh, our uh, my questions uh, for you are: latte bowl or single shot? Long black. Good answer. <laughs> brick or <laughs> brick or tile? Brick. Good. Lino. Lino. <laughs> Inside joke. Uh, large or magnum? Magnum. Oh yeah. Bring it down a notch. Cock or ball? One ball? No, just cock or ball. Oh, cock. Ah, good. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, sausage or meatball? Well, I've already got a cock, so let's get some meatballs in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Finnegan Walsh. I'm as nervous as you said I was. Just imagine me naked. <laughs> I'm more nervous. <laughs> okay. When I was eight, I had managed to grab hold of the title of criminal and crazy cat lady in about half an hour. And it all, it all happened at school. So when I was young, I didn't really want for much. I didn't really care that my sister and I she's younger than me, shared a bed. And I wasn't too worried that mum would send me to school with Marmite spread on wheat bix for lunch. <laughs> She'd say to me, she's like, swap it at lunchtime, I'm sure there's someone. I just like, really can't imagine someone who would choose that. Like, especially with like roll-ups and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> I wasn't allowed roll-ups. So at school, there were a few rumours, and a few of my favourites were Mrs. Powell was a twin, and we would get them on a rotation every week. <laughs> there was a girl that lost her thumb under this metal lid of a rubbish bin and threw it onto the field. And honest to God, by the time I left primary school, people would still spend lunchtimes looking for that thumb. <laughs> and then the third one was this house on Corona Road. I'm from the shore. On Corona Road, on the way home from school, <laughs> it was really run down and dark and dingy and didn't have any humans living there, it just was covered in cats. And so, this was amazing. So many cats, so many cats. This was the rumour. And I had, all I'd wanted was a cat, because I was eight and it was about time, and you know, I think eight is cat time, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I had this backpack, I'm walking home from school, and I've got this backpack. And it's a battery powered backpack, so the bottom of it lights up with your walk. <laughs> so I'm walking home from school and it's like a disco ball because I'm so excited because I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going to cat heaven right I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have all these cats on me and I did I got there and it was really old and it was really dark and it was so far off the road that you couldn't see if anyone was living there so I presumed it was abandoned and there were cats now this was a while ago and I'm pretty sure there were cats everywhere but if I think about it really hard, I'm pretty sure they weren't. But in my head, they were. So I bent down, I was on the grass, and I had that voice that says, I'm really not scary, come towards me. And they did. They all came towards me, and there was, there was Trevor. He was this tabby cat, really fluffy, kind of walked sideways like a crab. <laughs> Potentially blind, because that's what cats do when they're blind. <laughs> and then there was Jemima, and she was ginger and really fat. And then there was... 
Salty and Sally, and they were black and they had white around their eyes. And then there was Bob, and Bob was tiny and white, and he wasn't really sure, but he came towards me anyway. And so I was really excited, and I sat down in my skirt. I put them all on my lap, and they were all purring, and I was purring. It was perfect. <laughs> so good. And then something in my head just came up with a brilliant plan. So the disco ball school bag made its way around to the front of my lap, and everything inside it made its way to the burb. And I'm pretty sure I left a banana skin there, which tells you I'm really new to this crime thing. Just evidence everywhere. And I replaced my lunchbox and my drink bottle and my sweater and my shoes and my book bag with Trevor, Sally, Salty, Jemima and Bob. <laughs> All in the bag. Zipped it up. <laughs> my back. All the other stuff in my hand and I'm walking. And disco ball bag's going crazy. I'm really happy. Five houses down. That purring, you know that, I like this a lot, purring, kind of turned into this what the fuck is happening kind of sound from the back of my bag. And it was like this. It was like, was fighting cats. So I stopped and I opened it up a little bit and I pushed four of the cats back with one hand and just grabbed one out. Jemima, gingers always lose. And she did, she ran, and she ran so fast, and she went underneath the fence of the house I was standing in front of, and she just released her bowels all over the flower bed. It was so bad, it was so bad. So I zipped the bag up again, <laughs> and kept going with my walk. Two, bag, two houses down, and I realized I'm gonna have to let another one let go. So again, I've got the maneuver down, zip up, hand in, one cat, out. And then I realised that Sally and Salty were probably siblings and I wasn't going to Sophie's choice it, so I let them both go. <laughs> I'm so glad you laughed, I didn't want to bring up the war. Okay, so that happened. And then I zipped the bag up again and I went. And Trevor and Bob, they were in the bag and they really were fine. They had no problem. So I'm walking home and I make it home and I'm really excited. Because I needed to get this done, I needed a cat, and I got it done, did it all by myself, and I had a cat for me, and then I had a cat for my sister. And so I was Trevor's mum, and she was Bob's mum, and I was Bob's auntie, and she was Trevor's auntie, and it was perfect. <laughs> it was so good. Mum wasn't shocked by this. I had done this before. I had brought home many things for mum. I'd often run through piles of birds, and then the last one standing, I'd grab it and take it home. <laughs> So, <laughs> but she, she wasn't going to let me keep the cats. She had decided that this house was not abandoned and I had just stolen cats. That's, that's it. So for 30 minutes we were allowed and we were sitting there with the cat. And Hannah's actually not a cat person. She's actually really allergic. But she was, you know, trying. And then we got marched to the car. And in 94 we had a bright yellow Renault with brown bucket seats and it had no seat belts. It was the height of safety and really loud, really, really loud. We marched there, we're sitting in the back of the seat and she drives us back to Corona Road, to the scene of the crime. And then she's driving slowly down the road and she says to Hannah, Hannah, give your cat to your sister and wind her window down. <laughs> Sarah, just hold on to the cats. I said, okay, mum. And then I was, and then I realised, I was like, okay, this house isn't abandoned, and I'm going to have to talk to these people about these cats that I have now stolen. Shit. And then I was like, and then I'm going to have to tell them about the three that I've lost, and mum doesn't know either. Shit. And then I was like, I'm never going to have a cat again. 
Oh my god. I did, I ate many cans afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so we do. She's like, Sarah, I'm gonna slow this car down. And when I come to a near stop outside this house, you were gonna put the cats out the window. And I was like, oh my god, this is genius. I'm not gonna get in trouble. I'm, she's gonna be very disappointed in me for a while, but I'm not gonna get in trouble. So I do, I like grab them and then I just lowered them like a mum would, you know, like scruff. So I scruffed them and I dropped them and they ran. They ran in opposite directions, but they did run, <laughs> they ran. And then we zoomed off in this bright yellow car that comes around the bend back home. I often drive, I'm learning to drive at the moment, and so I'm often driving on Corona because it's really good for hill starts, which are awful, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I see that house and it is just as run down and it is just as dark, and there aren't any cats. But I really hope that Trevor, Sally, Salty, Jemima and Bob made it home. Uh. <laughs> Woo! Didn't she do well? Oh, that was wonderful. Oh, Sarah, you're a natural. Look at you. Oh, that's great. I'm so proud. Welcome. Welcome to all of these new people who are here halfway through the show. Remember, if you're not paranoid, you're not thinking hard enough. Okay. It doesn't matter. We've got time. All right, so just, just, yeah, just, just sit in the, pr yeah, in the prone position. <laughs> Pop a squat wherever you can. Um, so our third speaker tonight is, uh, uh, it's actually quite, quite astounding that we managed to get him. Um, he is the uh, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, and the author of the King James Bible. Please welcome Jono Aidney. <laughs> I'm not doing good on the alcohol, Oliver. Have you been drinking a lot? Yeah, tonight, yes. Oh, exciting. We, we, we had that once, more, once before, and that was a little, it was a disaster that we all went through together. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Did we? Um, uh, so, um, so you told me beforehand that you were a writer. Um, Everyone else got really exciting introductions, and I'm just a writer. <laughs> I'm a writer? I'm not calling you out. It's just what, the, what is that supposed to mean? Um, so, so tell me, so tell me, what kind of writing do you do, John? Uh, I write advertising. Oh, you're an advertising writer. I hear there's a lot of money in that racket. I'm also working on a novel. Wait, people are booing advertising? Oh, do fuck it. you boo guys! There's no boo. There will be no booing at the water cooler. I don't. I, this is we're, we're doing a job of work here. I don't come to where you guys work and knock cocks out of your mouth. All right. Yeah, I may have. Um, all right, uh, I've been desperate to say that for a while. Um, so, um, so uh, what kind of advertising stuff? Oh, you're working on a novel. Are you really? That's right. Do I'm you want to give us the, bias, the the you know the elevator pitch? Uh, yeah, it's about um, a couple who are making their relationship really difficult on themselves, and so they decide that they're going to leave Auckland, but the volcanoes of Auckland stop them from leaving. Ooh. Whoa. So intrigued. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a metaphor. <laughs> I like to think of the volcanoes I of Auckland. I didn't even get that. It's a metaphor. Yes, it's a metaphor. The volcanoes it's are beautiful. like the relationships that lie dormant around the city and of sometimes course. erupt. What's this? Gross. 
What is, what is the sky tower in that equation? Hypodermic needle? I haven't written the sky tower in yet, but it'll be, it'll be in there. Yeah, intravenous drug use. <laughs> Something you could use. Um, okay, uh, so, um, so uh, before, we, before we get to your story, um, I have a couple of questions for you. Sure. Uh, king or queen? King. Suit or, suit or tie? Suit. I'm going to suit. Suit. All right. Uh, this, one's, this, one's a little bit, this one's a little tricky, so you're going to have to, to watch your answer. Jesus Christ or Muhammad, may peace be upon him. I'm going to go, go Jesus, the J-man. There you go, Jesus Christ. King of the Jews. Jesus for the win. <laughs> Jesus for the win. These are all very conventional answers, I realize. Uh, uh, Kanye or Kim? I'm going to go Kanye. Yeah. Yeah, the one with value. Uh, and finally, black bean beef or honey soy chicken? You got me stumped. I'm going to go black bean beef. Oh, yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> what? That is, is true. It's slightly sexist. I got no cock and balls questions. Okay, well, this is a cock or ball. Do you have both? Cock. Do you have, do you have a name for your gender? <laughs> All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Jono Aidney. Thanks. All right. Thanks, you guys, for coming along tonight. Especially to my brother who came up from Hamilton. Whoa. Kind. The only family member that I would dare let be here for this. Uh, this story is about family. Uh, in every family, you'll find multiple versions of the truth. I have three younger brothers, and each of them would tell the story a little differently. Matthew would not tell the story at all. When it happened, my mother made me swear that I would take it to my grave like a drunken hit-and-run or a late-term abortion. That is to say, what follows is the truth, or at least my version of the truth. Matthew, my brother, lives and works in places no sensible person would ever choose to go. Malaysian typhoon country, the oil fields of Azerbaijan, Brisbane, Australia. <laughs> the permanent distance between us was enforced years ago by my mother, the school teacher, in a final act of desperation, and one that took the very last of her energy. About my brother, Matthew, he would climb before he could walk. As a toddler, he would crawl into the pantry and then scale the shelves to where the expensive biscuits were hidden. He learned to do this on his own, although like many of his tricks, it had been my foolish idea to begin with. Under duress, Matthew was capable of anything. At age seven, this was verified by the school principal, who decided to bus Matthew into town to join an experimental accelerant classroom where he would be amongst his own, the academic elite. The experience destroyed his relationship with the education system forever. My brother had no time for nerds. That same year, our long-running feud with the two boys who lived down the street at number 16 reached a disturbing peak. Two years prior, they had stolen my brother's bicycle, not any bicycle, but a vintage single-speed he had excavated from the swampy scrubland behind our house. He scraped the clay out of the chain and found it could ride, although he was much too small to reach the pedals. Matthew already had a perfectly good bicycle, a brand new BMX he picked out himself, but what he wanted was the swamp bicycle. Every morning he would push it up the steep hill that led from our house to the bus stop. 
He would tuck the bicycle away in the deep scrub so that in the afternoon when we leapt from the school bus, he would whip the swamp bicycle from its hiding spot and fly back down the hill with his feet nowhere near the pedals and his knuckles wrapped hopefully around the rickety old handlebars. One afternoon, the bicycle was not where it should have been. Word on the street was that the Johnson brothers had beaten us home from school that day. They had been seen riding the swamp bicycle in their driveway. This is how it began. An increasingly hostile series of revenge plots, starting with a classic prank. Live worms delivered in an envelope to number 16. <laughs> Juvenile, harmless, except to the worms, who I'm sorry to say did perish in the post. My little brother and I expected repercussions, and sure enough, they came. Our dead worm delivery was returned to sender, the letterbox at number 6. Come the summer holidays, the rivalry between the brothers at number 16 and the brothers at number 6 wore on. Matthew and I were celebrating our greatest success to date. A gift box filled to the brim with polystyrene packing material and excrement. <laughs> dutifully provided by our family dog. According to the other children in our street who pretended to be Switzerland, the box was overturned on the living room floor with great anticipation. And the Johnsons were getting new carpet. This was not taken lightly. The Johnson brothers were older and bigger than us, and the threats of physical violence had begun. Several times in one month, they took a bat to our letterbox, which baffled our house-proud father. Every weekend, he reconstructed our letterbox from scratch, refining the design each time until he had settled on a model that was theoretically indestructible. In the night, it would be reduced to kindling and cement dust. Eventually, he gave in, opting for an official-looking cardboard box with the number six scribbled and vivid. I don't know if you've ever had your letterbox smashed in, but it's a very symbolic defeat. The letterbox is a kind of spokesperson for your home, there to reflect your standard of living to the outside world. To my father, having a cardboard box for a letterbox was affecting his ego. As if passers-by might assume we were also living in a cardboard box. <laughs> he seemed genuinely upset, and knowing we were somewhat to blame, Matthew and I prepared to do the honourable thing and strike back. By 1999, the internet had come to our street. I wanted to try a recipe from a website I remember thinking was probably illegal. Matthew and I had a large pile of leftover polystyrene in our possession from the dog poo gift box plot. And my fa father, house proud as he was, kept our garage stocked with four litre tins of lawnmower fuel. As the brains of the operation, I had convinced Matthew to procure one of these cans and feed it polystyrene every day for two weeks. We would take the concoction to number 16, spill it down the driveway, and set it on fire. If you didn't already know how to make napalm, now you do. <laughs> the thing about napalm is it burns for a long time. Hours, days, weeks maybe, we weren't actually sure. But as long as it burned, the driveway would remain out of commission, and this would render the Johnson family unable to leave their house. <laughs> Which was the goal. It would form a moat of fire. <laughs> and they would be trapped on the other side of it. <laughs> For all our meticulous planning, Matthew and I had not considered the practical implications of dousing a large area of mostly dry scrub scorched from the hot summer sun in an accelerant and setting it alight. Or that once burning, four litres of napalm might be impossible to put out. Another thing we had not factored in was the presence of cars, which have a tendency to explode when exposed to extreme heat. Or the likelihood <laughs> our napalm... <laughs> Jesus. 
Or the likelihood our napalm would burn down at least one house, which is a crime known as arson. I'm glad to tell you that Matthew and I never found out how long our napalm would have burned. Our father had tried to mow the lawns, but had accidentally flooded the fuel tank with gooey clumps of melted polystyrene, like mini marshmallows in a hot chocolate. We were grounded. The lawnmower never worked again, but we had not blown up a car or burned down a house. And as the more responsible elder sibling, I finally learned an important lesson about consequences and how actions have them. Matthew, on the other hand, would climb before he could walk. It was generally accepted that Matthew spent a lot of time in his bedroom thinking about what he had done. So you can imagine my mother's surprise when she discovered that he had escaped through his bedroom window by descending a two-story rosebush attached to the exterior of the house by maybe half a dozen plastic twist ties. <laughs> my panicked mother called every number in the phone book and soon discovered that another local boy was missing. The mothers immediately involved the police who assured the mothers they would see their sons again at dinner time. Ten-year-old boys have to eat, they said. About the getaway... The two boys had left their respective houses at sunset. They had carried sleeping bags into a nearby forest and built a bivouac from vines. My little brother had started a controlled fire with a pit of rocks arranged to control the flames. Uh, the next logical step in this Robinson Crusoe fantasy is to find something to cook on the fire, something to eat. Down the far end of our street, past the Johnson house and away around the long bend, lived a man whose doorbell we were not allowed to ring on Halloween. Our neighborhood was only a little older than I was, and the original houses had mostly attracted young families. We played with the other children who lived in our street, and that's how our parents came to be friends. But this man did not have children. He had turkeys. Fat, ugly turkeys. Fat, ugly, beautiful, prize-winning pet turkeys. The turkeys were kept overnight in individual cages at the side of the house. He would groom the turkeys, keep them plump on a special diet, and win awards for how good-looking his turkeys were, compared with other turkeys. He would make the turkeys have sex with each other and create even better looking turkeys. Matthew knew about the turkeys, and this is where the story may not be for the squeamish. A turkey was released and beaten, not dead but dazed. A stick was sharpened into a stake. The turkey was skewered alive and hung open over the open fire to roast. I imagine its turkey feathers smoldering a dirty haze rising from the flames like some big, ugly phoenix. I imagine the two boys on opposite sides of the fire watching the bird incinerate, the horror on their faces, the turkey's screams, the steady crackle of the fire, the unbearable silence of a bad idea come all the way to fruition. <laughs> the exact same look that would have passed between Matthew and I had we accidentally burned down the Johnson house with a four-liter can of domestic napalm. <laughs> When the boys finally came home, it wasn't to eat. In fact, they were suffering from severe food poisoning. I guess when you take a plan that far, it seems a waste not to see it all the way through. The turkey breeder did not press charges, but Matthew was grounded for what felt like a year. My mother stopped sleeping since it was the only way she could be sure that my little brother was in his bedroom at night. My father trimmed that rosebush right back to the trunk. One day my mother, the schoolteacher, could not live in a house that Matthew was living in anymore. She was tired, and the small community we lived in was no longer on her side. So she put my little brother on an aeroplane with a big bag of clothes and told him to make a new life, which to his credit, he has done. And as far as I know, for the most part, by one or two exceptions, no animals were harmed. <laughs> John O'Andy!
the word, uh, the term domestic, <laughs> the, the term domestic napalm is not a, uh, is not a term, is not a phrase that I imagined we'd be hearing tonight. But the, oh, what's happened? Oh, it's him! Oh, we're going to discuss this soon. Ladies and gentlemen, this is going to be some fun. Um, uh, so our fourth and final speaker tonight is a Swiss entrepreneur and a, and a bungalow fetishist. Please welcome Richard Bow. Good evening. Good evening, Richard. I I, I got to say I'm 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 quite excited to see to see what you have to present to us tonight. Um, I uh, uh, now you are a lawyer. Is that is that is that correct? Uh, I work in the law, but strictly speaking, I'm not actually a lawyer. Oh, you're not. <laughs> it's all about verisimilitude here at the water cooler. Um, so, uh, so, so, what, so, what is it exactly do you, that you do again? I forget. I'm a writer, just like Jono. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you specialize in something, don't you? I deal in death. <laughs> you deal in death. And insanity, people losing mental capacity, that sort of thing. Yes. I'm just going to leave it there and, and, and let you work out what that means, but it, that's all true. Um, so, uh, 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 so, Richard, I have a couple of questions for you before we begin, of course. Um, uh, so, um, John, Paul, George, or Ringo? Do I have to pick one? Absolutely. Uh, is this the best one, what I want to have sex with, or...? <laughs> It's up to you. I like I like the sex angle. <laughs> uh, Paul's really cute. Beautiful. Star Trek or Star Wars? That's a really difficult one. I think I think Empire Strikes Back is the oh. best one of oh. by far. Oh yes. Out of all of those. Oh, everything. But Star, oh, yeah. Star Trek overall is more consistent. So it's. A <laughs> Well, the stuff that I watched, anyway. Richard, you are a special kind of genius. Um, uh, Google Chrome or Microsoft Safari? Oh, what? Is Safari by somebody else? Oh. oh, who gives a shit? I don't fucking care. Google Chrome or Safari? Uh, Netscape Navigator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Computers. Blue Ivy or Northwest? Yeah, it's a tough one, but a fast game is a good game. Do you uh, know what that is? Uh, they're both children of famous unions. <laughs> yes. Do you have a preference? This, 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 this. Uh, well, I, I can't stand. Uh, I think Kanye West and Kim Kardashian have got grotesque egos, so I can't imagine their <laughs> child will be at all um, uh, sufferable. <laughs> So, Northwest. Oh, sorry. No, I got them around the wrong way. Blue Ivy, yeah. It's just... Uh, it's like dipping my toes into insanity. Um, and finally, and this one's a little lame, but, you know, I think it's an important distinction. Hotel, motel, or bed and breakfast? Oh, I thought you were gonna Damn, I thought you were going to start reciting Pitbull lyrics there, but you just... You copped out at the last 
copped out right at the end. So, uh, I think bed and breakfast are quite cosy, I've, but I've never really stayed in one. Mostly I've stayed in motels. So, so you're going to go with motels? Oh, uh, hotels are classy. <laughs> That's true. Oh, this is wonderful. All right, so with that just d deeply strange interaction now finished, um, ladies and gentlemen, Richard Bow. Now, before I begin, a uh, note on the content of my speech. While all of the content is original in the sense that it was created by me, some of the material has previously appeared in a public forum. <laughs> so, if any of you were present to hear my speech from Standard 3, <laughs> parts of my speech tonight may appear familiar. <laughs> if that is the case, I hope that you enjoy these parts a second time around. The historian Keith Thomas has defined the relationship between humans and pet animals by listing three ways in which humans treat pets differently from other animals. Firstly, we give our pets individual names. Secondly, we encourage pets to enter private spaces, such as houses. Thirdly, we don't eat our pets. But our relationship with pets goes further than having a furry wall to warm your lap or a barking, licky, quadruped to welcome you home. <laughs> we treat pets as quasi-human friends and family. Their lives help to define ours. And in return, our pets get food, lodging, and medical treatment. <laughs> to, to illustrate the social contract between human and pet, I introduce you to Taffy. And, uh, and that's me, the other one there. <laughs> and I'm aged about nine at that point. As you can see, I'm, I'm very proud. Uh, yeah, I, I really like my um, shorts that have got flaming skulls on them. <laughs> I wish I had some now. <laughs> anyway, so my enthusiasm at holding my cat friend is perfectly contrasted with his lack of enthusiasm <laughs> at, <laughs> at enduring this unnatural pose. Oh. Taffy's date of birth is unclear, as he was adopted into my family home as a stray. He was euthanized in 1997. <laughs> after becoming terminally ill. <laughs> During this period, he managed to pack in enough experiences for several cat lifetimes. <laughs> I earlier referred to the practice of giving pets names. Taffy wasn't always known as Taffy. He was given the name of Tiffany. <laughs> we had assumed that Taffy, being a stray and having an underfed, scrawny frame, was a smaller cat and was therefore female. This assumption was swiftly demolished 
when my sister announced that Tiffany had balls. <laughs> the name Taffy was chosen as a suitable substitute and stuck. Taffy swiftly found a compromise within the pet social contract of receiving food and lodging in exchange for being treated as a living teddy bear. <laughs> when placed on a lap, he would sit uneasily for a few minutes, then hop off to sit beside you, purring loudly. Shortly after his arrival in our house, Taffy diced with death in the same manner as many cats, by being stuck up a tree. In this case, a tall pine tree at the back of our property. Cat, cat food was placed at the bottom of the tree in an attempt to lure Taffy down. After four days of Taffy up the tree, the SPCA kindly informed us that he would die. <laughs> Taffy did not die. He came down of his own volition, and after three days spent wandering the wilderness, he returned to the family home. However, Taffy's health was never the best, and as the years went by, things started to go downhill for my cat, he lost a lot of his territory to another tomcat <laughs> and suffered an indignity at the hands of the medical profession. <laughs> Taffy was taken to the vet who took his temperature by inserting a thermometer in his anus. <laughs> However, the vet forgot to take it out. <laughs> the, the thermometer was only discovered when we returned home and tried to figure out why Taffy was sitting so awkwardly. <laughs> My mother wrapped the thermometer in a paper towel and returned it to the vet. <laughs> I'm afraid Taffy didn't live much longer after that sad incident. In my stand three speech about Taffy, I described, I described him as purring like a lawnmower. To begin my speech, I used a turn of phrase that my teacher found slightly amusing. My cat's, sorry, my cat's name is Taffy, and I... <laughs> My cat's name is Taffy, and I love him severely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Bauer! Sorry, just getting notes from the producer. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, that, that, that's essentially the end of our evening, but I did want to finish um, by uh, reading, um, a, reading a poem. Um, this is a poem by Dalton Wilcox, who is the Poet Laureate of the West, and it's a poem that uh, is, is all about how uh, cowboys get lonely on the range. And, and, uh, and here it is. A cowboy is a lonesome man. There's none more lonesome in the land. He rides atop his only friend, his horse, a, ca a companion on whom he can depend. His woman may be miles behind him. Sadness and desperation may find him. But a cowboy who's wise will turn to the earth to lend him solace and even mirth. The earth from which all beauty springs, such bounty forth she always brings. He'll dig a hole with cracked, scorched hands, pour in all the water that hole demands until the earth is moist, just right. The earth will never put up any kind of fight. 
His cries of joy no one will hear. In case I am not being clear, I'm saying that cowboy is going to fuck a hole in the ground. We all do it. That's what I found. Any cowboy that knows that that sorry, any cowboy that knows that lonesome hell, confession a land Virginia well. And if a cowboy's seed worked like other seeds, there'd be cowboys growing across the plains like weeds. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Again, thank you so much for coming and for making this event uh, so exceptional. The fact that we have so many people uh, that it's overflowing and people are sitting on the ground is just uh, makes me the happiest, the happiest boy in the world. Um, so um, again, if if, uh, if if you'd like to sniff me or if um, uh, well, that can be arranged. And also, I'd love to give each and every one of you a kiss on the cheek for coming. Um, so you know, make an orderly line downstairs, and we'll work it out. Um, but aside from that, this has been the water cooler, guys. Thank you. Yeah.